Husbands can get started on your wife's Christmas shopping. It's the season of peace and joy when you go to the mall and get cut off in traffic and for that certain gift like you're playing a game of Mortal Kombat. It is that time of year, unfortunately, when a plastic manger scene with the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus is somehow a little too offensive to have in the mall, but some of those pictures in some of those store windows are not seen as such. It is an interesting time of year. It has been, it has been said that it's the only time of year when people sit around a dead tree and eat stale candy out of dirty socks. Lest we forget, it is a wonderful time in a lot of aspects, though, and we must never forget those. It is a time when people's thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus more than at any other time of year. It is a time when money, more money is given to charities than typically is done. And so there are a lot of good things that go on this time of year as well. We, in the Churches of Christ, who consider it one of our greatest privileges to learn and to study and to know God's will, understand that God did not mention the specific date of birth of the birth of Christ anywhere in the scriptures we know that we know that we don't know the date he was born we also understand that God never come out and commanded us that this was something that we needed to do to remember Jesus birth in this way we understand that the Christ mass celebration is a combination of humanism and commercialism and Catholicism all coming together and as such we understand that this holiday really doesn't have a biblical spiritual significance to us we understand as we talked about this morning that the real focus in the Bible is not on the birth of Jesus that was just a means to an end but on his death his burial and resurrection that is the gospel that's where the power is we understand that we also understand that we are commanded to remember him as we gather about the table. Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20. On the first day of the week, as the early church did, and that is how we are to remember him. <clears throat> Knowing all of that, though, sometimes we have to chuckle a little bit at some of the strange and unbiblical things that we come in contact with this time of year. For instance, that song we sometimes hear, we three kings of Orient are. They weren't kings. They were wise men. The Greek term is magi. It means magician, or it's where we get magician. They were astrologers, hence the star. And we understand that, Matthew 2, 1, 7, and 16. We might kind of chuckle a little bit, unfortunately, when we see a nativity scene with a manger and the three wise men, because we know that the three wise men weren't necessarily three. It could have been 300, it could have been two. We know there were plurality. But we know they went to the house. They weren't there that night with the shepherds at the manger. Every time I see one of those nativity scenes, it's like, come on folks, read your Bible. The wise men were not there that night with the shepherds at the manger, but they came to the house some weeks later, according to Matthew 2, 1 through 10, and we know that. And one of the big ones is, you know, this time of year, a lot of people put you know, angels on top of their Christmas tree. They're always girls. There are no female angels in the Bible. Angels are males. Gabriel, Michael are male names, and whenever you see an angel referred to, it's always with a he as the definitive, whatever that thing is called in the English language. 
But they're never a she, it's always a he. And so female angels don't exist in the Bible. However, despite all the confusion and contradictions and commercialism, let's not throw out the baby with the wash water, as it were. Even though we don't know the date, and this lesson could just as well be appropriate, therefore, in June or April or August, let's not forget why Jesus came, ever. Why he came, and hence the name from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the title of tonight's lesson, God with us. Let us remember that, especially this time of year, but not necessarily for the reasons you might think. It's during this season, during this time, that the days are shorter. Matter of fact, I believe that it was probably yesterday was, if it wasn't, within the last few days, the shortest day of the year. There's less sunlight. People suffer more depression this time of year because of the sunlight deprivation. And let's face it, folks, we've had a lot of health issues around here in this congregation over the last month, month and a half. It's a, it's a hard time of year for a lot of people. And so I want us to not ever forget what it means that Christ came. Emmanuel, God with us. No matter how hard it is, no matter how frustrated we may sometimes get, no matter how we may struggle, we need to remember the reason Jesus came. God wanted to be with us in a very special way. We need to remember that this time of year and always. What God has always been willing to go through himself just to assure us that he is with us, that he loves us, that he wants to go through this with us. And therefore, one of my favorite Psalms in the Old Testament, well, obviously in the Old Testament, Psalm 46. I know a lot of people love the 23rd Psalm, and I always tell them the 46th Psalm to me is twice as special. Think about that. Psalm 46, though, look at the power in this Psalm. Look at the God with us power in this Psalm. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is, that's present tense, that's right here tonight. God is our strength, our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Isn't that a wonderful verse? God is a very present help in our struggles, in our troubles. Right now, that's who he is. That's where he is. Therefore, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. If you were to see this huge mountain just be ripped up from the earth and just taken over and, and thrown into the Gulf of Mexico, something that, that incredibly terrifying, God says, don't worry about it. I'm there for you in times of trouble. Not I will be, I am. He is our refuge and strength. He is our very present help. God said even the most incredible thing you can imagine, terrifying thing, I'm with you. I will go through it with you. There is a river, verse 4, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
You know, all of this other stuff may move. The earth may be removed, it says in verse 2. The mountains be carried away. And all the mountains shake and all of that's moving. But it says here, by contrast, in verse 5, where God is, there will be none of that movement. God will help her just at the break of dawn. Look at this. He says, the nation raged, the kingdoms were moved. When, when the nations raged and men got angry, the kingdoms were moved. But look at the contrast. He simply spoke and the earth melted. Showing you the overwhelming power of God. That's the point of this psalm, the contrast between anything we can go through on earth and the incredible power of God who is our refuge and our strength. The Lord of hosts, notice Emmanuel, God with us, which is our theme for tonight. Notice verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. He repeats this later on. Look down in verse 10 what he tells us to do. Even amidst the earth shaking and the mountains moving and all these, these incredible things that just terrify us, look what he says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is where? Is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. What does it mean, that phrase, God with us? What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means we don't have to live in fear. That's what it means. It means, just as David said in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David said, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear. Isn't it wonderful to know if you are a Christian and you belong to God, if Jesus Christ's blood has washed your sins away, if your record is pure before God because you've accepted that gift that we talked about this morning and you're walking and you're trying to please God, isn't it wonderful to know that if you're on your deathbed, you don't have to fear. Isn't that awesome? That's exactly what he's telling us. Death is just a shadow. It can't hurt you. What does it mean, God with us? It means that God himself will be with us every step of the way, whatever fiery trials we have to face. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. One of the things I think that Satan likes to do the best is when we go through something awful, and we all go through awful stuff. He likes to make us feel isolated and alone. But you know, if we talk with fellow Christians, there's a lot of Christians that have gone through the same thing we're going through. And we can find strength in that with one another. God with us means God will walk through our battles with us. It means we have brethren to help us. It means that God will give us everything we need and then some to get the job done that he has asked us to do. And a million more blessings that are even more incredible than that. According to Ephesians 1.3, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Can you get your mind around that? I can't. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours where? In Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1 through 3. That's the incredible power of God with us. Stop and think with me for just a few minutes of some of those in the scriptures who encountered some terrible, terrible things, but God with us made all the difference. For example, think of Joseph. Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Think of Joseph. We know the story. You've taught it in Bible class. I don't need to go through every little detail. But you know he was sold into slavery by his brothers. You know his brothers hated and resented him. He was sold into slavery and carried off to a foreign land and sold to Potiphar and 
We know that he did the right thing and, and Potiphar's wife come after him and got him thrown into jail and he's in jail for an extended period of time. He just goes through this awful stuff, alienated from his family, from his homeland. He does the right thing and he still gets persecuted. But Joseph came out of that okay, didn't he? Read that account and see how many times it says, and God was with Joseph, particularly in the prison. You'll find it more than once. Joseph was successful, unbeatable, and invincible in his struggles. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph. That's why. Turn to me to Exodus 3 and look at another one whom God was with and the difference that it made. Exodus chapter 3. Another very, very familiar story. Of course, Moses and the story of the, the burning bush. Look at verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> now therefore behold the cry, God says, Exodus 3, 9. Therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Look what God says. So God says, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. But God says to him, you don't have to worry. I'll go with you. I'll, I'll be with you. It's okay. Remember, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, kind of had an ax to grind with Moses. Moses had killed an Egyptian. It wasn't going to be pretty to go back and face Pharaoh with all of that power after he'd killed an Egyptian. God says, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. But, verse 13, Moses comes up with an excuse. Who shall I say sent me? And God deals with that. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, God takes care of that. Go down through to verse 10 of chapter 4. Look at what we find there. Moses comes up with another excuse. Says to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Haven't I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. What is God telling him? God says, I'll go with you. You don't have to worry about your shortcomings. You don't have to worry about the slowest speak. God says, I'll go with you. It's okay. And you will have success because I am there. God was patient. God was providing for him. And God said he'd go with him. As we look further on in the book of Exodus to chapter 14, if you turn there again, a very familiar story. But, but look, at, look at what it means to have God with you. In Exodus chapter 14, the story of the parting of the Red Sea and all of that, we look down in verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt, Exodus 14, 5, that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this and let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him took 600 choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt were captains over every one of them. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued the children of Israel. The children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army. They overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihaharoth and Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. You ever been very afraid in your life? You ever seen some crushing thing come at you that you just didn't know how you were going to survive it? They were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in this wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better to die there than to die in this wilderness. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And we know the rest of that story, but the question for us to consider tonight, sometimes it may seem like there's no way out. These people were backed up against the Red Sea. And we look at the story now, of course, we've seen, you know, the TV and the movies. But, but think about being there. Forget that you know the end of the story. These people were backed up against the sea. There's nowhere to go. They're not warriors like the Egyptian horsemen and charioteers. They're not battle-hardened people. They've been building mud bricks. And there's nowhere to go. They can't run to the right or to the left because if they do, they'll be hunted down like dogs. The Red Sea is behind them, and, and they see, they've got all their little ones and their, their animals, and, and they see this army coming over the horizon, coming to annihilate them. There's no way out. There's no place to go. And they're scared. They're terrified. Sometimes it seems like we don't have the energy or we don't have the strength to face the situation that we find ourselves in. We'll, call, we'll talk about our backs being up against the wall. We're terrified. We're paralyzed. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's whatever. We know what, you all know what I'm talking about, don't you? And we're questioning. We're questioning God. What am I going to do? And we cry out in fear and frustration, and it's during those times that we must remember exactly what it means, God with us. You know what that means? It means I don't have to live in fear. Even when it looks like there's no way out, I don't have to live in fear. It means I can stand firm in the faith, hold on to God and his word, and watch the Lord work. That's what it means, God with us. It means, Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It means that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us, they can't win. God with us means if God is with us, nothing else really matters. That's what that phrase means. It means, however, that even though the road to the promised land is going to have its struggles, God's not going to forsake us on that road to the promised land any more than he did his children, the physical road to the promised land, right here in the Old Testament. Look in Deuteronomy 31. They were headed in that direction. 
the physical promised land, as it were. You know, what, you know what God said? Look at this. This is beautiful. In Deuteronomy 31, beginning at verse 3, Moses talking to the Israelites, and he says, Deuteronomy 31, 3 through 8, he says, The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. God's going to be with you. He's not only going to be with you, he's going to be in front of you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. God's going to do this. Is there any doubt that God's going to do this? No, God said, this is what I'm going to do. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who what? Goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. In the New Testament, we have a very beautiful similar promise in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Brethren, we have to understand that no matter what the struggle is we're facing, if we belong to God, if we're his children, he's not going to leave us to face it alone. He has promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those of you who are parents, grandparents, you got this four or five-year-old, and they're in this terrible situation, and you're not just going to say, well, you're on your own, I guess. That's not what we do as parents. And if we, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in Heaven give to us? Is that what it says? Sermon on the Mount, sure it is. God's not going to just leave us to, to our own struggles. But sometimes even the mightiest of those who belong to God, even those who are the spiritually strongest, need some reassurance now and then. For example, in Joshua, the very next book, if you look in Joshua 1, Joshua needed some reassurance. Even the man of God that he was in Joshua 1, 5 through 9. Again, very familiar passages tonight. I understand that. But look what is said. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, God says. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I'll not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Don't turn to the right or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. See, we've got to stay in the Word of God. We've got to not turn to the right or to the, right or to the left. We've got to stay in God's Word and God's will. But if we do that, we will prosper. He says in verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. And here's why. No matter what he faced for adversaries, no matter what he faced for odds, no matter what he faced for opponents, God said, you don't have to be afraid. And here's why. Look at it. Nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't get me wrong, Joshua had his struggles. He had his battles. God with us does not mean that we're not going to struggle. 
doesn't mean that at all. God with us means that we don't have to stay in the fight alone, Daniel chapter 3. It means that in the end the victory is ours because God doesn't lose, Romans 8, 31 through 39. God with us means it doesn't matter the number, the size, or the strength, or the power, or the odds of whatever it is we're facing. God with us means we need not fear. Remember the story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17? Some may say, well, what's that got to do with us? We don't have any giants today. Oh, yeah? We don't, huh? See, Goliath has some giant spiritual relatives that we have to deal with a lot, that we still struggle with. Goliath has some spiritual descendants, as it were, that are seeking to destroy some of us today. Would you like to know their names? Here's some of them. Some of the things we struggle with, the giants in our lives. Guilt. Guilt is one of them. Grief. Depression. Discouragement. You ever struggle with discouragement? Sure. It's, it's a giant to many of us. Fear. Death. Those are some of Goliath's spiritual great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. But here's one of the beautiful things about being Christian. There's way too many to count, but here's one of them. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. That's a good leader. Jesus never asked us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. Emmanuel, God with us, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, was very vulnerable at times. When he came to this earth, we know that he surrendered some of his deity, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. We know that he was made like his brethren, like you and me, in all things, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. And he initially made himself completely helpless. Jesus, he did. Vulnerable and totally dependent on God to take care of him and carry him through in some of the most hostile of situations. Have you ever thought about that? Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke 2. I'll show you what I mean. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verses 4, or verse 4 and running through verse 7. Luke 2, beginning at verse 4, running through verse 7. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Do you know what swaddling cloths are? Swaddling cloths are these real tight, it's a real tight, you might think of an ace bandage type of thing, but it's, it's a real tight cloth that you wrap the baby in. It's like a cotton cocoon. And the whole idea in those days was if they could keep the baby in swaddling cloths with the arms down to the side and keep the legs straight, that, that they would grow stronger bones, longer, straighter. That was the idea of swaddling cloths. They kept them in swaddling cloths for about six months 
tightly wrapped so that their limbs would grow straight and strong. Maybe the babies get out of that once a day. But you ever think about it like this? God was in a straitjacket. That's pretty much what Jesus and the swaddling cloths were. The creator of the cosmos and the architect of the universe was completely confined in cotton or wool. He was unable to move, speak, or protect himself. Jesus was completely helpless and vulnerable. Jesus, at that point, couldn't have called 12 legions of angels. He was a baby. And he was helpless. And Satan was not prowling around like looking for somebody to devour. He wanted Jesus. He wanted to destroy and eliminate Christ. Because if he could get him, he'd get all of us. Have you ever thought, as you read through the account in Matthew 2, 1 through 16, what if within that company of wise men, Matthew 2, 1 and 2, one of them was an oriental assassin? What if the Jewish leadership, verses 4 through 6, in that same chapter of Matthew 2, what if they had succeeded in locating the helpless Christ child confined in his cotton cocoon? What was, Ju what was Joseph supposed to do? He couldn't have fought them off with a carpenter's mallet. And then in verses 3 through 16, what about Herod? What if Herod had found Jesus? King Herod, who was so ruthless and dangerous that he had many of his own family members put to death. He had his favorite wife killed. He had his, some of his own sons killed. Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded, that same Herod, who secretly summoned the Magi and told them, verses 7 and 8, to let him know where the Christ child was. And when they didn't, it says in verse 16 of Matthew 2 that he became exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all their districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. What if, I know I talked about silly what if questions this morning, in Bible class. But think about this. What if the wise men had not obeyed God and they had avoided disobeying Herod? What if they had gone back and they had told Herod where the baby was? Did, did the wise men have free will? Did they have free will? Sure they did. Everybody does. The wise men had free will. What if they had gone back to Herod? Said, hey, we've located the baby. Here's where you need to go. Or what if Joseph, a little later on in that same chapter, had that dream about fleeing and God talking to him, and he wakes up and, and he says, you know what, that was a really cool dream. I think I'll get a drink and go back to sleep. Did Joseph have free will? Sure he did. He could have disobeyed God. The point is this. For the first time since time began, God in the flesh, the baby Jesus, was vulnerable and at the mercy of mortal men. And his survival depended largely on their decisions. Now, somebody might say, Doug, it's pretty silly to get all worked up and worried about all these what-ifs. God was watching over Jesus. Was God watching over Jesus? Was he? Sure was. God was watching over him. God knew what was going to happen. God was looking out for him. After all, this was his son. It is ridiculous to think that God was not going to take care of his child. Is that a fair statement? Sure it is. Did you hear what I just said? It is silly to get so worked up and worried about all of these what-ifs. 
God was watching over him. God knew what was going to happen. God was looking out for him. After all, this was his son. It is ridiculous to think that God was not going to protect and take care of his child. Is that right? Yes. Just like we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us have, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, we are all children of God through our faith in Christ when we we're baptized. Is that right? Galatians 3, 26 and 7, is that what it says? Yeah. And God watches out for his children, doesn't he? We need to understand that sometimes we don't need to get all worked up because God knows what's going to happen. God promised to be with us and God watches out for his child. For we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then were heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans 8, 15 through 17. We are children of God, and God watches out for children. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3 and verse 1. Yes, you're right. We shouldn't get so worked up over some of these silly what-ifs. When it comes to God's vulnerable son wrapped in a cotton cocoon or God's adopted children whom he loves and cares for too. This is the whole reason that Jesus came. He wanted a very spiritually intimate relationship with us. He wanted us to become sons and daughters of God. That's why the gift, that's why all of that, so he could cleanse us so that we could become God's children. God wants us and loves us that much. God did not go through all of that trouble to have his son nailed to that cross, to have that gift rejected. God did not go through that in that entire plan so that you and I, when we are facing a hard time, he could just say, good luck, people. If he's going to do that, why bother? No. God wanted to be with us in our struggles. Emmanuel, God with us in a very special way, in a more spiritually intimate way than the Old Testament people of God. He wanted to be our father and he wanted us to cry out, Abba, Father, like a, like a little child that is hurting or that has burned itself that just wants to climb up in, in daddy's lap and just have those big arms wrapped around them and just be held while they hurt. That's the kind of spiritual relationship God wanted with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what that phrase means. And that's why he came. He came in the flesh to die on the cross so that he could come and spiritually live within those who would believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins because then they would be once enough holy enough for him to dwell in. That's what it means to have God within us. That's what led the Apostle Paul to say after his baptism into Christ, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you a child of God tonight? Has your faith in God, 
Your exposure to that beautiful gift, as you have read and studied the scriptures, led you to by faith be baptized into Christ and thus become a child of God. If not, you need to do that. But most of you in this room, I believe, probably have done that. So something I want to leave you with tonight. God with us means that you do not have to fear. No matter what life throws at you tomorrow morning, what it throws at you tomorrow afternoon, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what the news reporters say, God with us means that we don't have to live in fear. Because God will walk through any fire this earth can throw at us, with us. And God doesn't lose. That is the comfort I want you to take home tonight. And if you have not been baptized to become his child, or if you're a child of his who struggles with fear and discouragement, and you just need the prayers that of your brethren that God will open your eyes to this beautiful gift that we have, God with us. Please make your way now to the front as we stand and sing.